0: You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Inside ARU, philosophy and work
1: with Yaron Brook.
0: Right, I going to go to uh, introduce you, Yaron. Um, I mean, it feels a little bit silly to uh, introduce you to this crowd, but w- why don't you just give a little bit of background in case there are a few people who don't know who you are, um, what you do. I was
2: looking forward to you introducing yeah. me, not me introducing myself. All right. Well, um, my
0: co-author, is there anything else that's important about you? Yeah, I think that's I, that that covers it, Don. <laughs> uh yeah. So Yron is the chairman of the board at ARI, uh, ran ARI for a number of years, um, was CEO when I was first hired back in the day, and uh is um, I think by far the most widely known speaker and commenter on objectivism living today and um, has a radio show, the Ron Brooks show, which is really, I mean, if you want the objectivist take on what's happened in the last 10 minutes, uh, it's astonishing how how, um, how much uh, content you're able to produce you're on. Um, but uh, that's who you are. And um, tell us a little bit about sort of your journey to get to where you are today. And we can kind of keep it brief and then zoom into the pieces that um, people are most interested in. We think we can extract some lessons from.
2: Sure. So so I think a lot of you know, because I've talked about it in the past, kind of my discovering Ayn Rand at, at age 16 through Atlas Shrugged, uh, scrounging around for years to try to find stuff to read and and be engaged in. Um, and uh, thinking I was the only objectivist in the world for a while, uh, in the days before the internet, that was fairly easy. Uh, and, um, you know, finally discovering, uh, discovering uh, others um, who were studying Ayn Rand's ideas uh, in Israel, being quite involved um, in organizing events and in organizing activities um, in Israel and uh, you know, participating in a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, discussion sessions, uh, even in the 1980s and trying to, trying to better understand the philosophy, um, moved to the United States in 87, uh, first place I came to in the U S pretty much was the Thomas Jefferson school, which was the, the predecessor of uh, a couple of generations ago, predecessor of Ocon. Um, And uh, that was two weeks, amazing two weeks. Uh, Leonard Picoff, Harry Binswanger were were among the many faculty members at the time at the conference, Uh, got to know the people at ARI. As a consequence of that, uh, then went to graduate school at the University of Texas, MBA and PhD in finance. Um, Again, found a group of of, uh, objectivists in Austin in the days where Austin was... um, uh, the backwoods, uh, not like today, where it's a sense of the universe, and uh, very active in terms of studying objectivism, uh, discussing it, engaging, both at a social and intellectual level. Uh, started a conference business in Austin, Texas, where we would put on conferences, the Hill Country Objectivist Societies conferences, something like that. Um, and we would put a conference every, every year, it was billed as an amateur's conference, because the papers were delivered primarily by non-professional intellectuals. Uh, uh, and then in the mid 1990s, got involved with the OGC, the Objectivist Graduate Center. I also started running uh, Lyceum International with, with a, a partner, Pamela Benson, put on Objectivist Conferences, landed up putting on the Summer Conferences, that today are OCON, um, put those on through the 90s and other kinds of conferences. And then uh, became the CEO of the Institute in 2000. Uh, although, and, and I was a finance professor during during that period of time as well. And um, I became a CEO in 2000. You know, in most of that period, I would say I never considered myself, and I think this is, never considered myself really an objectivist intellectuals. I was studying objectivism. I was interested in objectivism. And even as a hire to the Rand Institute, I don't think I was um, hired as an intellectual I was hired as a kind of a, a guy who could who could run things and get stuff done um I think I I think I'll you know the the more intellectual side of the career only came about post 9-11 when um there was a real demand for content and together with Encar, primarily with Encar, um you know we we worked hard to to develop that content to build that content. And then I was the guy who who delivered was the primary person who delivered that content also discovered in spite of, um, terrible early experiments discovered I was pretty good on TV and in media and in interviews and things like that. Uh, so I became kind of the, the, the guy who went on TV and, and did all that. And I'd say with, you know, before that was really the launching uh, event, if you will, for my intellectual career, um, you know, and, and after that, I think I think most people know, I, I ran the Institute till 2017, um, and since then launched the Iran book show, January, uh, January 2015, the day uh, Charlie Hebdo was attacked. Um, that same day I went live, I was gonna do a practice session and decided to make it live given what had just happened. Uh, and since then, uh, the Iran book show has gone through many evolutions and is gonna go through many more, I predict in the next few uh, months and years. Uh, but uh, since then, I've been doing that. Uh, over the years, I've become a, a public speaker and, and speak all over the world. Uh, and that's certainly part of part of the brand. Um,
0: yeah, and I, uh, we got a lot of questions from people about, you know, your work as a public intellectual and development as a speaker and commentator. I wanna come to that in a little bit, but I'd like to hear more about, um, I mean, it's that had to be a big transition from kind of running some speaking companies and teaching as a as a professor of finance to now you're running the Ayn Rand Institute. What prepared you for that job? Or and what did you do coming in and thinking, oh, I'm not prepared to figure out how to run it?
2: I think what prepared me was um an understanding and a knowledge of, of a lot of the people involved. So because I'd run a conference business, I had been, I had employed um, Leonard Peakoff and had a deal with him as a, as a employee, you know, somebody who spoke for me. Uh, Harry Peter, a lot of the people on the board had interacted with them. Um, I also knew a lot of the young up-and-coming intellectuals, Ankar being, you know, obvious example. So, so so, I knew a lot of the talent that was available within objectivism uh, because I'd, gone, I'd we were students together at the Objectivist Graduate Center uh, during the 1990s. I think also a certain maturity around objectivism, I'd, I'd been, you know, so I, I took over at the institute in 2000, January 2000, I, I'd been studying objectivism by that point, you know, for for 23 years. I, I don't know how, I, you know, some of those years wasn't weren't as effective as they could have, as you know, maybe today with, with the, uh, the Ayn Rand University and so on, but I'd been studying by myself and with others and in different formats and with the Ayn Rand Institute and all kinds of ways for 23 years. So, so I, I I thought I came in with a certain knowledge of objectivism. I also think I came in, um, you know, pretty grounded. Uh, a lot of objectivists, and Leonard Picoff talks about this in in uh, un- uh, Understanding Objectivism and We've talked about this many times at the institute so uh, you know rationalism is a big problem in the objectivist movement, and a certain detachment from reality or, or from what it actually means in terms of actually living it and i think i came in relatively with a relatively healthy um relationship with objectivism if, if, if you can put it in those terms uh in terms of it being part of my life i don't i i mean I, Aspects of it, I probably still hold a little rationalistically, but I I I think relatively relative to many other people, I think I was pretty grounded uh, back then, and even more so today. Um, so that that was all the pluses. A, a lot of a lot of the uncertainty about coming into the role is well, what do you do with the Einstein Institute? Okay, so you've got you know I I remember I'm, I used to commute down because I started. Uh, at the Institute part-time because I still had commitments as a professor and I would scribble all kinds of ideas for strategy and all kinds of ideas for what I wanted and what I thought would be good and what made sense and what didn't make sense. And and um, it was hard and it's still hard. I mean, I, I know Tal still scribbles, right? And um, it's, it's it, you know, what do you do? Okay, so I, I'm running something called the Ironman Institute, but what does that mean? What is the goal? What is the, I know what the mission is, but how do you implement that mission? Um, and in, you know, the other thing to remember is, at the time, I, in, in 2000, the, the, the Institute budget was about a, a sixth or a seventh of what it is today. Um, you know, the number of employees was, uh, I can't remember, it was, it was maybe 10, 12. Um, and uh, there were no other intellectuals on staff. Uh, so there were no professional intellectuals on staff. Um, one of my first hires was onCA to because I, I I understood, for me, right from the beginning, uh, what we needed were intellectuals. What we needed was both to produce intellectual content and to continue to train intellectuals but and to do it more systematically. And that was one of the first missions I think Encar took on was to develop such a systematic program of training future intellectuals. So, what do you do with it? What, what, what is, what should be the strategy was, I think the thing that I found most uh, difficult. And I remember there were days where I didn't quite know what to do. It, you got a full-time job and you're sitting at the desk and I wasn't sure what I should do. Um, it was, it, it's very, you, you have to motivate yourself and you have to drive yourself. I, I don't, didn't have a boss. I had a board of directors that basically ultimately was looking to me for answers. And um it was, it was hard to figure out what to do, right? It, it, I, you know, I think a lot got clarified pretty quickly, but there were days where it was very it was very strange in the sense that what do you do What do you do as a professional intellectual if you're, or what do you do as the CEO of an intellectual organization? Not at all clear, not at all clear. Um, um, I see is smiling. <laughs> not, maybe nothing's changed only in the last before, years. Say, before I accepted the job, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is the hardest thing, and we're talking about why we pay CEOs a little bit more because of the challenge of, of strategically guiding the organization. That's that's a really hard task. Yeah, I mean that's the primary job of a of a CEO is to strategically is to strategically guide the organization and then put in you know put in all the factors, the resources, the human and capital resources to make that strategy a reality. But those are those are the challenges.
0: Yeah, I remember as a teenager getting my copy of Impact Monthly and say, ARI hires new intellectual to create program. It was the first time I had heard of Onkar. And that was, yep. I think that, that was the first copy of Impact I ever got too. So um, I'm curious how you've thought about your enjoyment of work. Like, have you always enjoyed what you're doing? And if not, like, how have you tried to move towards greater enjoyment. Like how do you make sure because it's one thing and we could explore more about making an institution like ARI successful. But I think for the for this class, one interesting thing is how do you move more and more towards a vision of like, yeah, I'm I'm really enjoying what I'm doing and and making that a primary
2: consideration. Yeah. I mean, it really is a a, a path of self-discovery. I don't I don't think it's obvious what you're going to enjoy and what you're not going to enjoy. You know, I never thought of myself as a teacher before I started teaching, and um, e- even when I first started teaching, I didn't really enjoy it. I, I and I and I gained a real appreciation for it and gained enjoyment of it over time. Um, and and I, you know, in every aspect of the job at ARI and then later, you, you have to figure out what you like and what you don't like. So it it became pretty obvious to me that what I liked was the, the strategic thinking, the the kind of the deploying the resources, the putting the pieces together, um, and what I what I liked was the with the intellectual work. The you know some of my, you know the best time I had was the interactions with Encore and just just learning and and talking and figuring stuff out. That was that was you know super fun. Um, you know, and I also discovered what I don't like, and and it became pretty uh, obvious that what I didn't like was. The day-to-day process of managing people—I—I—I I, I, I don't get people. Um, no, but I—I—you I, I, know—it was—it was challenging. Even in a in a objectivist um, organization, it's not easy, um, and uh, I didn't particularly enjoy it. I had many conversations with people like John Allison and others on how to do it better and uh, how to improve on it. Uh, and I—and I—you know—I think I got better, but I don't think I ever mastered it completely. But it, it's, that was to me the most challenging. And I'd say when I left the Institute, the biggest relief I had was, God, I don't have to manage people anymore. Uh, it was a huge load off. And, um, and and in a sense, I did get to do uh, the stuff I really enjoyed. And, and even during the Institute, uh, you know, there was, I hired, at some point I hired a chief operating officer to a large extent in order to allow me to focus on the things I thought I did well and enjoyed. Um, there are aspects of fundraising I enjoy, there are aspects of fundraising I hate, um, but that's something I had to do, so um, so uh, I knew I had to focus on that. I, I love public speaking and intellectual work, so having a chief operating officer who handled kind of the day-to-day management helped do that. So, um, yeah, I mean, once you know what you like and don't, and it's not obvious, right, you, you, have, to, you have to live it, it to some extent, some things you know. But some things you have to live in order to figure out what you like. And I didn't know I was a public speaker until I became a public speaker. I didn't know I was good at it until I became good at it. Um, And it's not, I had some intrinsic knowledge of or intrinsic passion to get up on stage and do stuff. That's not me at all. Um, And uh, it was, it was again a process of discovery and how to do it. And, and that I enjoyed it. It was obvious to me that I enjoyed teaching when I, once I got into it. Um, So it's a process of discovery. And then, in your career, to the extent that you have control over it, um, trying to get better at the things you're not good at because because it's important and, and at the things you might not enjoy, the better you'll get at them, the, the more you'll enjoy them. Um, and then trying to figure out how to structure your life in a way that you can minimize the things that you um, don't enjoy to the extent that that's possible. I mean, fundraising clearly was something I had to do managing people is something clearly i had to do so there was no way to just get get uh, shrug that off you you had to you know you do it uh you get the best resources you can to make it easier but you still have to have to do it uh, until you get to the point in your career where you can uh, where you cannot do it well maybe you could say so you mentioned
0: fundraising a couple times we were talking about negotiation and how like a lot of times people feel uncomfortable for asking for, you know, what they think they're worth. I certainly struggled with that. Um, My memory, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that at least in the early days uh, your fundraising team was constantly saying, you're on, you got to go for the ask. And you you weren't, uh, and that's certainly something you've gotten better at. So maybe you can say a little bit about how you've uh, approached building that muscle.
2: Yeah, I know making the ask is very hard, particularly. I mean, some people, Uh, more tuned to kind of the sales, a sales mentality where you, where where you ask, I was not, I'd never been in sales. I I didn't know how to do it. I, 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 it didn't come natural to me at all. Um, But when you interact with people who have a lot of money and, and, um, and you're trying to raise money, it becomes pretty clear after a while that they want you to make it ask. That uh, they're disappointed in a sense when you don't. They 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 might say no, but they what are we what are we doing here if you're not making ask? What what is this all this conversation? What is all this? What do you want from me? Right? Put it out and and some of them, some of them, um some of them will say that. Very few, but some of them will say that. But a lot of them are disappointed if you're not if you're not if you don't get to the point. And the point is, I'd like X dollars or I'd like your support. And uh, so. So so realizing that helped, the second thing is that it helps when you believe in the product and you love the product and you're passionate about the product. And that's true of yourself if you're asking for a raise, but it's also true of of a of a business uh when you're raising capital or, or of a nonprofit if you're out there uh asking for support. Uh once I got into Uh, you know what the value proposition was it was easy to then say and and this is what we need in order to make it work this is what I'm asking you for Uh, so it's and and another thing you realize is people want to support specific things they want to own them they want an ownership piece so you know at some point we figured out that I don't know uh, selling giving people certain schools for the book project, they, they loved the idea that they were providing books to students for the high school that they went to or the county that they lived in or the state that they were residing in or something like that. Um, so, you know, and then, of course, the most important thing, I think, is hooking into their own self-interest. Why is this good for them? Right? Why is this the thing that they should do with their money? There's lots of stuff they could do with the money. So once you get comfortable with this, it's in the self-interest it's important, they want you to ask, then it's relatively easy to ask. And at some point you get, you know, I could get a little obnoxious about it, but some people deserve it, right? So I I had a guy tell knows who this is. I had a guy who would always tell me he's going to give me a lot of money. And um, I'd go back and I'd never, you know, the check would not arrive. And I have to bug him and buy him. Finally, maybe he'd send a check in. And um, and so once I, I was in his office, and he, you know he said, "I'm going to give you guys a hundred thousand dollars." And I said, "That's great. Um, can you write me a check now?" And he said, I'll, "I'll send it to you." I said, "No, I'm not leaving the office until you write me the check." <laughs> I literally said that. and And because I knew, I, you know, I'd have to bug him for months to get the money. It's not that he was lying. It was this this is his personality. So he went to his desk, pulled out a checkbook and wrote a check for hundred thousand dollars and handed it to me. So, you know, sometimes you just got you've got it. You've got to do it. But, you you know, I was at that point. I knew the guy. We had a friendly relationship. I could say that with a smile, not with like a frown or or yeah, you know, I'd say, you know, in the past, it's taken me a lot to get that. I'm not I'm not leaving. So you, you've got to be able to do it in a friendly uh, in a friendly way. And, and you got to know when to do it. Some other people would be offended. And, and you couldn't get away with it. So you've got, to, you've got to know who you're dealing with. I think these are principles of sales. You got to know who you're dealing with. You got to know what your boundaries are and you got to know what kind of relationship you have with them and how far you can push it. So, um, so yes, not- again, you, 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 a lot of this, the learning is, I mean, this is true of everything in life, right? You've got to go out and do it and you've got to repeat, but just repetition is useless you've got to learn from every repetition that is every time you do something you've got to go back and this is true of public speaking this is true of writing this is true of everything you've got first of all you've got to do it if you don't do it you'll never learn you'll never get good at it you've got to do it do it do it and then but you've got to constantly self monitor you've got to constantly monitor yourself how did i do it did i do well what did i do badly what was this facial reaction when i said x x versus y how can i get better at it how can i do this uh, more effectively and that's how you get better at anything uh, and anything uh, I think. And, and uh, uh, it's, it, it's iteration like that where you're constantly learning from your experiences.
0: Well, speaking of that um, I want to turn to your kind of development as a public intellectual. And in particular, I want to start with speaking. Um, I mean, I've, to whatever extent I'm a good speaker, most of that came from things I learned from you, but, I mean, you didn't start out as an electrifying speaker. And as I remember it, it was really around the financial crisis where you really started to click for you. Um, and part of what I admired is that you didn't start out great. So I could really identify with, wow, look how good you're on is, but he didn't begin that way. Maybe I could do something like that. Um, how how do you see sort of your trajectory and what were the turning points for you in developing that skill?
2: Yeah, no, I I certainly did not start out as an electrifying speaker. I mean, my first class that I ever taught, I was an MBA student and I was asked to teach the finance class. I just, for undergraduates, that I just finished. So it was a semester after I'd learned the material. I was teaching it um, at the University of Texas in Austin. And uh, I think Revital came to, my wife came to one of the classes and she was like, this is hopeless. (laughs) This is not your career. Um, I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it was, I was not good. Uh, Partially because I didn't know the material um, that I was teaching. And that's, that's never good, right? Uh, I was learning it while I was teaching it. I was figuring it out while I was teaching it. Um, But then once I got into the classroom at Clara, I I got much, much better. I I improved constantly. And as I got better, I started enjoying it and the, the improvement really came from, Gaining gaining comfort with the material and then focusing on the students. Because why are you teaching? You're not teaching in order to just regurgitate the material in your head or on the board or just to appear big and strong on stage. You're teaching to connect and to, and to have an impact on people's lives and have an impact on people's knowledge in the case in here in finance. And, and once you start caring about the student in front of you, that's when it becomes interesting and fun. And exciting once you are starting to monitor their, their uh, response and 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 trying to constantly improve so that they get it better. So so I was a good teacher. I knew I was a good teacher coming into the job at ARI. but you know being an intellectual at ARI was very daunting and very uh, it, it's scary. Uh, it's scary, um, I think it's less scary today, but it was very I think it was uh, really scary when Ankar and I I think started, because the models were Ayn Rand and, and Leonard Picoff, and that was it, and, and Leonard Picoff was there, right? <laughs> so, uh, uh, and, but it wasn't just the fact that they were there, it's the fact that they've, they set such a high bar in a particular type of bar, and they delivered their content in a particular kind of way in a particular kind of style, and then everybody delivered it in the same way in the same style, basically, so everybody did. So, uh, lectures at OCONS, um, in the, you know, pr- what was called the Thomas Jefferson School and then Lyceum and early on in Ocon, everybody read their talks. The, you know, e- everything was, all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed. And, um, you know, every one of those talks could have been an, almost an essay coming out of the ga- gate. And Leonard Peikoff was a master at both reading the talk and making it seem like it, it was extemporaneous, but almost nobody else is that good at it. And, uh, and we used to get complaints. I remember when running conferences, why does everybody read the talks? This is, you know, this is not how you do public speaking. It's so, um, so when I started out in the I would read my talks and I think I was fairly good at it. I wasn't terrible, but I wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't Leonard Peekoff level, but I was okay at it, at reading the talks and giving some emotion into it and getting into it and so on. But, um, but it was, it was very, very intense and intimidating. Um, you know the the amount of editing that went into the talks uh, limited how many talks you could give. Uh, once you gave the once you developed a talk, you wanted to give it as many times as you could because you'd put so much effort into the the writing of the talk. And it wasn't like teaching; it wasn't as fun. You're standing up on stage, and it's it's not it's not as much fun because you're tied to the notes and you're not really seeing what's going on in the audience and you're not really observing them. And so you you don't get that connection. You don't get that sense of the impact that you're having on an audience. And uh, so uh, sometime around the financial crisis, I was working on talks on capitalism. I, you know, previous to that, I'd pretty much given all my talks on foreign policy. Oh, and the other part of it is that um, the most fun in a talk was the Q&A. And I thought I was really good at Q and (laughs) A's and the Q and A's were completely extemporaneous. You you can't prep for a Q and A. And yet I was, I was pretty good at it and people were more connected and there was more involvement by the audience in the Q and A. And yet, you know, we would write these talks that would go at least an hour long, sometimes over an hour and you couldn't cut any word because the words were this, this is the only formulation that was possible. And, and, um, and yet yet where you really got the audience engaged and involved and passionate and excited was in the q a and where i felt like i was really having fun was in the q a um so part of the so you know i came slowly to the realization that something was wrong here um I needed that we needed to change the way we presented material that it wasn't as effective as it could be um and, and so I was already thinking along those lines. And then we'd hired. So we hired a couple of speaking coaches and and one in particular, I was in New York where, where his office was and he, he we went, it was in his, he has a studio there um, where he taped stuff. And we basically he went through this exercise of, you know, why do you give talks? What are you trying to achieve? You know, what do you think people get from your talks? What do you think people leave with them? And it just, and then we did a little exercise where I read one of my talks and we had somebody kind of off the street then tell me back what he'd heard. And it was shocking how little people absorb when, when you read a talk. And, um, um, and so basically, it was just, it was obvious from what he said that I needed to go back to kind of the more the teaching style um a style where the talk is well prepared, it's 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 you know it doesn't mean you're not preparing, it doesn't mean you're not uh writing it out, it doesn't mean you're not outlining it, but you're not reading it when you deliver it. You deliver it and went through a number of phases where had some outlines and then had very you know on a on a podium, then had very short outlines on the floor. And then at some point you should be able to do it, you should know a talk to the point where you don't have to have any outline. and you know, once I started doing that, it was obvious that it was right, and it was obvious that I was good at it. And it was, and part of it is that I loved it. I enjoyed it, right? Because you're again, you're interacting with the audience. The focus now is not on you inside your head. It's not you, your diction and how you pronounce the particular words. I remember the biggest problems we'd have with me reading talks is the certain words I can't pronounce. I just I I don't know why, but I just can't pronounce them. You know, some of you know this from the Iran Book Show: the names and the words that I just I just, people correct me all the time. doesn't matter. Um, and, and they would be right there in black and white on the page, and I'd still mispronounce them. And we'd have to work on that. And all that worry about what's on the on the page disappears. You're now with the audience. You're focused on them. You're focused on, on what you want to present, on the three points that you have. And if you want more information on this, then come to my, um, then sign up for the uh, 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 class that I'm teaching this summer um for aru on public speaking and and you it's much more natural it's much more fun and uh, i think it's much much more uh, efficient in terms of getting the points you want to get across to the people you want to get it across to so again it becomes more student focused rather than in your head focused What does it mean to be a generalist? Because I think some people think being
0: a generalist just means, well, I just say whatever I want whenever, you know, the opportunity arises and that there's not a unique kind of skill set involved in it.
2: Yes, I mean, I mean, there's a, a, a lot of questions there. One is why specialize? I think because the scope of human knowledge is so extensive that if, if, we're get, if, if you're going to have an impact in your field, you need to have a field you need to have deep knowledge in that particular area integrated into a lot of other areas. I mean, Alex specializes energy, but he knows a lot about business and he knows obviously a lot about philosophy and he knows a lot about other things, but he is a specialist. He, he he's, he's specialized and then integrated with everything else, that speciality. And, and that's, I think how you, uh, how you need to approach it. And again, the reason is the complexity of, of reality of the world. And, and, uh, The the fact that there is so much knowledge out there, there's so much to learn about any particular field, and that if you're going to be convincing, and if you're going to make an argument about a particular field, you better know it. And and knowing it is not uh, trivial, and it's, you know, I, I used to have friends who thought, when I was young, that if you knew philosophy, you knew everything, because philosophy explains everything, right? It's the fundamental it's a fundamental set of ideas that explains everything. So if you know philosophy, everything else is the the deduction from philosophy. So how complicated could it be to be, to know everything you need to know about energy in a sense, we know everything we need to know about energy. All you need to know about energy is we should be free. That's it. Now go and make an argument like that to about energy. I mean, it's, you can't, It, 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 it completely goes over people's heads. They don't get it. They don't understand it. But what about this? And what about that concrete? And what about this connection? And what about, Uh, What about externalities? And what about a million different things, right? And you better have answers. And you're not going to have answers as a generalist for the most part uh, to those kind of things. Um, So one is I I think you need to specialize because it just the nature of reality requires it. It requires specialization. It requires deep knowledge in particular areas as an intellectual where you want to have an impact. How to choose a, a specialization is is complicated. I mean, it, it depends on your values. You have to figure it out. Yeah. Again, there's no there's no replacement to trying different things out, right? Um, Alex Alex was doing all kinds of things and he was uh, reading all kinds of different material and trying to figure out what the hell Iran wanted and what what he should specialize in and and re- and then he fell in love with energy. He fell in love because of an essay he wrote on uh, on Rockefeller. He fell in love, and he suddenly realized, "Whoa, this is really, really important, and uh, and 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 all and and huge, and it's a big area, and it's not it's not narrow, and there's a lot to learn." He suddenly realized. So, read a bunch of stuff, right, and figure out what you really find interesting. What do you really find interesting right now? I mean, I could give, I could tell you what I find interesting if I was going to specialize now. What I would specialize in, but um, but that's not going to help you. I mean. We don't have an expert today. Uh, you know, you want to know what? specialized right now, A- artificial intelligence. There, there should be an objectivist out there that defends that is, you know, one of the biggest issues right now is, is in in business and and is, you know, the the, the guy who's responsible for the biggest advance in AI in recent, you know, recent times. Sam Altman goes in front of Congress and says, "Please regulate us because we're really, really dangerous." Like what is our response, and and what do we know about how to structure that response, and what do we know about AI, and what do we know about the dangers or the lack of dangers, and how do we defend that? And how, I mean, I talk about it, but I know when I'm talking about it, I don't know enough to do a real deep dive and really talk about it. So, technology generally, I think, is 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 uh, is fascinating. I, I did a show on on chips on semiconductors and the, the implications, semiconductor, the implications for foreign policy, the implications for domestic policy, the implications for, for a lot of different things that have philosophical roots. But that's just in policy economics. You don't have to specialize in areas like that. You can specialize in ethics if you're a philosopher. You can specialize in, uh, you know, culture. You can specialize in in, uh, in in free speech. You can specialize in, I don't know, sexuality. That's a big issue right now, right? Uh, you know, sexuality. So you can you can specialize in, in a million different things, uh, but you have to find something that interests you, that is that you're passionate about, that you can see the integration with philosophy, and 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 go. You know, somebody says biotech and life extension, huge, right? Huge areas that require philosophy and a philosophical defense or philosophical uh, perspective. You have to figure out what interests you. It might start out as a very narrow thing that expands broader. It might start out as something broad that goes narrow. There is no rule here. You know, the reality is endlessly fascinating. There are endlessly interesting things out there. Start with something. Specialize in it. See how far it'll take you. See if you can broaden it and maybe switch specialization after five years. It's not like if you do one, you're set for life and you can't do anything else. So experiment and play around with it. Also, you know, this whole idea of me telling you to specialize, I mean, this <laughs> idea of people specializing, you know, no, the, the idea of this is a new idea. This is not a new idea in a sense that it doesn't exist out there, but it maybe is a new idea in a sense of we're now thinking about this as a way to change the culture, as a way to, to, to for intellectuals to do work. I don't know what the right calibration is. You guys have to go out and figure it out. And it's, it's kind of funny do, me saying this because I'm, of course, the generalist. So uh, I, I'm the one who hasn't specialized. or oh, specialized. I came, I went from specialization to generalization because I'm a specialized in finance and somewhat economics and then generalized from that. But um but well, that's what I was going to, uh, because I was a little
0: surprised by your answer, you, Roman, and that I would think, or, so I'll tell you my view and you can respond to it, which is briefly, um, I think a generalist plays a real role that they specialize in integration. And part of what they're helping you do is get a, they're- bringing together all of these different issues and parts of the economy and and cultural issues and helping you see the big picture, the direction of a country, the direction of a culture, that that seems to be a real value. Though I agree with you, the people who are really good at that often are there usually have a few areas where they have very, very deep knowledge. I mean, And like you said, even yourself, there's a few areas that you know at a specialist level or close to it.
2: Yes, and I think I think you're absolutely right, Don. but and I also think, but I also think those people are rare. They're not a lot of specialists, and they shouldn't be a lot of specialists, but yes, the value they contribute is the integration. but that's hard. and I don't know how I mean, I don't know how to teach that. We've had that the conversations about this. How do you teach that? But to see the patterns and the integrations and to see the connections is is uh, is more difficult. so um yeah, I mean, I'm not yeah, I. I think they. I think that most intellectuals specialize, and you always need a certain group of of, uh, of intellectuals who are generalists.
1: Uh, I mean, one way to think about it is being a generalist is a specialty. Yeah. And the the kind of I think part of what you're trying to combat, Iran, is a generalist who thinks of it as easy because it's yeah. I, and I'm interested in a whole bunch of different things. So I'll talk about a whole bunch of different things. <laughs> But if you're thinking of it from the perspective, am I providing value to anybody versus doing things that I just happen to like doing and talking about? It's hard to provide value as a generalist, but it's also as a specialist. But it's it, it, part of it is to know something at a level of depth that you provide value to other people, and it's it's that's that's the kind of higher level that one should be thinking about. Is what I'm doing providing value? To people. And it takes a lot of work to get to the point that you provide value as a specialist or a generalist.
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, and and it's it's you know, it's not a it's 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 hard and it's also it's it's very tempting, and, and there's so many people out there who do this, to view being a generalist as um commenting on everything and having something to say about everything. You know, the biggest temptation I have, particularly doing a daily show, is to want to have an opinion about everything. And, and one of the biggest challenges is to be able to step back and say, I don't know what the hell is going on. I, I you know, and, and I, or oh, I know a little bit, but I don't know enough. And that's really hard. I mean, and by the time I usually gain enough information to say something about a, a hot story in the news, the story's passed and nobody's interested anymore. Because everybody in the news cycle we live in, everybody just wants that immediate reaction, immediate outraged response and and collecting facts and thinking about something is not very sexy
0: um how do you deal with criticism, negative feedback on your talks, on your you know radio show you you get more of it probably than. <laughs> uh any objectivist maybe alex can give you a run for your money but definitely uh you get a lot of it um how do you take that and and, and maybe you want to separate out kind of just anonymous people online versus people you respect who say you're on i think that was a bad performance or you got that wrong
2: yeah no, i i mean yeah ha- i think you have to separate those out i mean people i respect I actually value that kind of negative feedback and, and, you know, usually they're right. And usually there's something I could do better. And the only way to learn is by taking that kind of advice seriously and, and using it. I mean, the number of times I was told by by Lena Peekoff that I don't know what I'm doing is, is pretty astounding, but um, I learned from that, you know, and, and it was incredibly valuable every time it happened. Um, I mean, uh, and and the number of Times has told me, no, that's wrong. You should think about it differently. Um, it, you know, but but how are you going to learn? It, it's hard to do everything yourself. Um, and it's harder it's harder than judge yourself and, and self-monitor yourself. So I'm sure, you know, so what you have to develop is, and I don't know what this takes, but it's it's a certain self-esteem. It, it certainly is related to self-esteem you have to be willing to accept the fact that you're going to say stuff that's wrong. I mean, you don't want to embrace that. You don't want to accept, you don't want to, um, uh, you don't want to uh, uh, go out of your way to say anything wrong, but you've got to accept the fact that you're going to be wrong. Just like you, you, the advice you give entrepreneurs is you're going to fail. You're just not everything you do is going to work out. You're going to learn from those failures. You're going to get up on your feet and you're going to go at it again. And that's basic one-on-one advice we give entrepreneurs. Failures is part of the process. Well, being wrong is part of the process of being an intellectual. Uh, maybe not for Ayn Rand, um, but, uh, but for mere mortals like us, I, I definitely think that. And you, you have to accept that. And then the challenge is how many times can you, can you recognize for yourself when you're wrong and then the incredible value that other people provide you when they tell you you're wrong, right? Other people are giving you a massive value when they tell you you're wrong, and, and if they're right about it, right? And that's, that's generally my attitude um, towards criticism. I mean, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't always work like this because emotions sometimes intervene, but um, basically somebody gives you criticism, and they're right, then you should say thank you. And if somebody's good as your criticism and they're wrong, then who cares? It's kind of their problem, not yours, right? So um, that's it. So, you know, sometimes it's not easy to put into practice but that's the basic attitude. And, and I think you develop the kind of self-esteem that where you can live up to that and and, uh, and live that way. I think that's true in all aspects of life. And it's certainly true uh, for intellectuals Um, You know, one of the things I miss about uh, not being at the Institute, one of the challenges, I think, of a work-at-home environment, and certainly for me, not being day-to-day connected to the Institute, is not getting the negative feedback, or not getting, wouldn't even call it negative, but just the feedback of, wait a minute, here's a different way, you know, you're not thinking about this right, think about this, or think about that, um, that is incredibly valuable. And one of the things that I think Anka and I talked about for many years about wanting to create within objectivism is the kind of intellectual environment, the kind of intellectual community. I know that for some people, that's a bad word, but an intellectual community where people can actually say to one another, hey, what you said in the talk, it's not exactly right. You you might want to think about it this way or that way, you know, or even, you know, that talk was shit. It was just bad. Um, and and that people respect that, and people people accept that, and people move on and and grow and learn from it. And that I I, I really hope that one day that that's the kind of intellectual community we have uh, in objectivism, uh, and, um, and and where we, we, people can accept that and, and live with that and and grow and learn from that.
0: Right? Ankar, you made the point several times during our classes. Where there and even today, where there's the kind of religious mentality at work, where it's in effect like I'm trying to in effect gain a deity's approval rather than I have a. Per- Would you say like this is an example of it where people, in effect, as long as I don't, like, if I I want to avoid saying something wrong, and and like they're less concerned with going out there and achieving something positive, and so there's the kind of um, you know the 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 sin is not to fail to promote my ideas. It's to like um, reveal that I'm, you know, capable of making mistakes or capable of errors. There seems to be some overlap with what you highlighting and the kind of points that you've been drawing out about an attitude to values.
1: Yes, there, there is a connection. I think that it's the, Anytime you're emphasizing the avoidance of a negative over the achievement of a positive, something's wrong and like seriously wrong with the whole attitude/slash orientation. So anytime it's yeah, if, if I fail, that's the big issue. If I give it a good time, okay. Yeah, but if I if it gets something wrong or the, the just the whole motivation and goal-directedness is there's something askew and one has to think a lot about. But I would say there is there are reasons to be intimidated here. And Jeron said the ARI, and particularly when you joined ARI, there was an aspect that was intimidating. It's that you want to live up to the philosophy that the yep. philosophy has all kinds of profound new truths, the mission of the Institute is to get those out. And if you don't do it right, then you're portraying the mission of the Institute. And so there is a real issue there that's not a religious issue. But you, you're part of what Yaron said uh, in this context, but he was generalizing it. And we've made that point off. You can't do you can't improve unless you do things so you can and and i've we've given sports analogies that sometimes and i've said it's useful to think about sports because there's a lot of things one can learn and it's it's a distilled kind of environment in which one can learn things and that's like it can't be that michael jordan can somehow get to his level and not actually play games all the time that yeah, like his future self as an NBA star would crush himself at high school, but he's got to play the high school games and he's got to develop and so and that like you have to have that perspective, and that has to be the primary perspective, otherwise it's you're not focused on values and what actual value achievement requires.
0: You're on for those who um, objectivists who maybe aren't pursuing an intellectual career do you have any kind of big picture thoughts on what they could be doing to better leverage the philosophy or the objectivist community?
2: Well, I mean, I think that it, it there are a couple of, um, couple of buckets there. One is, you know, support, support the people who are, you see, I'm always a fundraiser, support the people who are, uh, produce, uh, doing the work and, and producing the intellectual content. And, and the second is, um, I find objectivists so, really fearful about sharing content. Like we live in this area of social media. We live in this era of the internet where you can actually have a huge impact by taking Ayn Rand's content or uh, ARI content or whatever content and, and using social media to share it and 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 kind of let the world know about it and maybe comment on it, but but put it out there. And I find so much resistance partially because well I don't know I mean it's it's an interesting psychological question about why that is, but part of it is that everybody wants to be I think some some of part of it is that people want to be original. They, they wanted the content to be theirs and they find it unsatisfying to share other people's content. And I think that there's a real profound mistake there particularly given that we're all learning this philosophy from Wayne Rand. Um, and uh, I, I think it really undermines it. If you think about all the other movements out there, the, 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 the grassroots is so eager and so good at sharing the content that their intellectuals produce and using that content and maybe commenting on it, but, it, but it, there's, always a, there's always a link to an article, a video or something. And I, I find it interesting that the objectivist movement is, is really in a defensive mode. It's like we, you know, we're afraid to offend maybe personally because of personal relationships or, or we just don't feel enough self-confident in presenting the material because we might be asked to defend it and we're not sure we can. I, I don't know, but the, the, you know, getting the word out there, being much more confident about your own views and being willing to stand by them and willing to stand by the people articulating those views in public, I think is something that could be really, really helpful Uh, for everybody to engage in.
0: All right, we have a couple minutes left. Um, Here's again, this is from uh, Stefan. After all these interviews, what is one question you wish somebody had asked you, but nobody has yet?
2: Uh, That's exactly the kind of questions I blank out completely on. I have no idea. I have no idea. Uh, I wish some of the interviewers would... You know, many of them have read the philosophy and read Ayn Rand. I wish there were a few that understood it, uh, you know, that th- th- the criticism came from a point of understanding, at least, and not agreeing, but understanding. It's, it's in a sense, boring to hear the same, what if there was a hot girl at the bar, why wouldn't it be selfish to go sleep with every hot girl in the bar? It's like, come on, you know Ayn Rand didn't, didn't hold that. It, isn't that obvious from... Every scene in Atlas Shrugged that she didn't hold, that is the view of selfishness. So what is it that you're missing? Why can't you introspect and figure out why you don't get it right? rather than asking the same silly question over and over again? <laughs> you know, I wish there was more demand. It would make my life easier. Um, I still feel like I'm pushing and it's not pull Like I'm not being pulled by the demand. I now it could be like, uh, I'd make a lot more money if I was pro Trump, right. A lot more money. I mean, it would not even the ballpark. Um, uh, or there are a few other issues where I could easily, you know, as, as I was offered a million bucks to integrate God into it. You know, there's so many little things like that, that you could do that, um, but I, I don't. I'm still not at the point, and I, I don't know that I ever will be at the point where there's real demand, right? Uh, people are still, even the groups out there that have me speak, it's always with hesitancy. It's always with. It's still difficult, as 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 popular as maybe I am within the objectivist world, or even I'm not even sure if that's true. But you know, within a particular subgroup within the objectivist world. I'm not anywhere else really. And, and, uh, and even the people who I, th- I think like me when I present, I don't get a lot of invitations. I don't, it's, it's a very strange world out there. The relationship of other intellectuals in the world to me is very weird. The, the relationship between student groups, they respect me, they like me, they think I'm a great speaker, but they're not inviting me to come and speak because they're not sure about the message and they're not sure what they're embracing when they have me come in. Objectivism is still, I think, you know, really still a challenge for, for everybody out there and still something they people have, even our friends supposedly, have a kind of a love-hate relationship with.
0: Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.